Psalm 54 is another of the lament psalms, which there are at least 50 of. Some think as many as 70 or 75. But here's what we read in Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me, people without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me and your faithfulness destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Let's pray. Lord, once again, I thank you for these lament psalms. Thank you for giving words and voice for us to use in times of confusion, be it big, painful, bewildering seasons, or just the incidental moments of disappointment and confusion of day-to-day life. Lord, I pray you teach us today as we look at this most important one, the idea of choosing to trust. God, guide our steps, speak truth into us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We tried to recognize in this short series that suffering and pain are designed by God to help us grow. But we've also recognized that pain and suffering can be very confusing. There is a voice that suffering's have into our lives. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He famously made this statement, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He does speak in pain and suffering, often louder, more acutely, yet Pain and suffering can also be very confusing times. Especially if you are a person of faith, it is hard to reconcile the fact that God is great, transcendent, infinite, good, merciful, kind, faithful, gentle, compassionate, with the onslaught of pain and suffering in our lives. So we struggle. And God gives to us in such seasons biblical lament. Biblical lament we've defined by this definition. A lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is for Christians. Lament is not for the atheist. An atheist does not have a a place in their lives for biblical lament because they are not wrestling what we are wrestling with. Atheist reporter Susan Jacoby, who writes for the New York Times, expressed this in her own very succinct way when she wrote an article entitled The Blessings of Atheism. Here's what she wrote. When I see homeless people shivering in the wake of a deadly storm, when the news media brings me almost obscenely close to the raw grief of bereft parents, I do not have to ask, as all people of faith must, why an all-powerful, all-good God allows such things to happen. And of course, she's right. This is not a dilemma for, for, uh, for Susan Jacoby. She does not need the psalm of lament to help her work through her confusion about God's goodness, 
for her God has no place or space in her thinking or her life. Now, I believe there's a lot of other issues that she's going to have to intellectually as well as practically work with in atheism. One, very simply, is the fact that to desire to have meaning to life or purpose to life, which is very much at the fabric of our humanness and our human desires, one finds that without God, without a superintending voice, there is no ultimate purposes. There are no real meaning to life. So we're not arguing that an atheist gets a pass on struggles and intellectual issues, but we are saying the issues addressed in biblical lament are for Christians. It is wrestling with the goodness and greatness of God in the midst of suffering and pain. Lament is trying to reconcile pain and God's goodness. We've looked at the four different stages. This is really what we've been walking through these four weeks. And the 50 lament psalms are given to provide words and voice in your prayer in the midst of pain. We saw where to go. Go to God. Um, this is not, these laments are not just therapy sessions where you talk to different people or we are not encouraged to, no, he constantly is addressing God in these Psalms. It is his prayer that he is expressing. We see that he expresses his pain. He groans. A vital part of working in seasons of lament. We need to openly, transparently, rawly, express our confusion to God, our why, our how long, uh, the, the, the bewilderment that we feel when we, don't, when we don't get it. Again, it doesn't need to be a giant thing. It just be, God, why didn't I get the promotion? God, why, why, why is this happening? Why was the utility bill so much higher? I mean, what's going on? We can lament in, in all seasons of life. We also are encouraged in these Psalms to ask for God's help and, and that asking is usually in the context when the questions haven't been answered. We're still saying, God, I need your, your help here in this season of groaning. But the ultimate purpose and the focus of the Psalms of Lament is to help you trust God, to choose to trust God. And it is why these Psalms are so valuable because they don't just focus on one part of this. It is not just a chance to groan to God, although it is that. But it is ultimately designed, that's why there's value in letting the Psalms actually be your voice and letting them lead you and provide words in your prayer, that you would then find that each aspect that God will lead you through this process of lamenting, aiming towards trust in God, and a lament is designed to be a prayer leading you to trust. This morning, we're going to look at the fourth and most powerful of these stages. When your prayer from pain turns to trust. And this experience is continually identified in the Psalms of Lament by the word but. Look at how it happens. In Psalm 31, the psalmist says, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. In Psalm 71, for my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there's no one to deliver him. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Psalm 86, O oh God, 
<clears throat> excuse me, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This morning, we're going to look at two aspects of this process of, of, of learning to choose to trust. And we're going to look, first of all, at what the psalmist says. And again, I'm summarizing uh, from these 50-plus psalms of lament the three things that he continually remembered to, to, brought, to, they brought to mind and encourages us to bring to mind that help us to choose to trust. They are incentives to trusting God in the midst of our pain. They are the things he, that were continually his go-tos. Some of them are in this psalm. Secondly, we're going to look at some practical insights from these psalms of how to choose and keep choosing trust. So let's look first of all at reasons, to, and the first will take longer. Reasons, to, I only say that so you don't despair uh, when we're still in the middle of number one. Um, reasons to choose trust. There are certain things that the authors of Lament encourage us to remember. They, remember, they ask us first to remember how God works creatively in his children's hardship. This is in verse 7 of this passage, this particular psalm of lament. And he says, For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. He says you must practice remembrance. And one of the things you need to remember is how God has creatively worked in the past. That God is always at work. That God has always designed. And there are things that you would never have imagined that he could do or would do in the midst of your affliction. And he says, you need to commemorate those moments. You need to bring them to mind. And, and much of the Psalms, even Psalms 78, 79, are just long histories of God's work in Israel's history. Um, and, and just reminding the people, remember, this is our God. He's, he's at work. And in those seasons that seem bleakest, he's shown his mercy the brightest. Down in Alabama, there is a statue that has been erected in a small town. The bow weevil is a, a bug that a uh, predator, particularly of cotton plants, if we could hold that for a minute, sorry, um, and the, too late, um, the, the bow weevil basically was indigenous to Mexico, in 1915 came to Alabama, and as it came to Alabama, it within two years decimated counties, whole counties, cotton crop. It was, it was, it was threatened to wipe out farmers all over Alabama. They were forced to change, and a couple of guys got the idea, let's go with peanuts, and they got people together, and groups formed, and, and they networked together, and they planted their properties in peanuts, and it turned out to be an absolute cash cow. I mean, they, they made out like bandits. It was unbelievable. They'd never been as prosperous as they'd been before. They also learned in that process that, that they needed to diversify their crops because they realized it's dangerous to be dependent, plus it depletes the field. So major changes were made for the good, both financially and long-term plans for the farmers, and they were, it, it became a season of blessing. And so one town in Enterprise, Alabama, they put up this statue and that is the main street of Enterprise, Alabama, and that is a bow weevil that that lady is holding up and celebrating the bow weevil because of their gratitude for, in what was a calamitous situation, so much beauty and good came out of it. Now, I'm happy to tell you that 
it is a place that you would want to keep in mind for your next romantic getaway to get pictures like this if you want to do so. <laughs> the theme that somehow something disastrous can be a catalyst to something good is not only the story of the Bow Weevil statue, it is the story of biblical laments that God creatively works in calamitous seasons to bring forth great beauty in people's lives. And this is the psalmist's constant refrain. God, I've seen you do it. I, I, I remember how you did it in a way I never could have imagined how you brought forth beauty. And if I had a chance to, this morning to bring every one of you that have walked with God for a number of years and know Jesus as your, as your Lord, Savior, you're walking with God, and I would say, which are the moments of your life where you have, have seen God work? Most of you would say, maybe all of you would say, it was this incredibly difficult season of my life where God did these beautiful things. And, and you might say, you know, I prefer not to do that again. However, I wouldn't trade what I experienced with God for anything. That God works, and he says, remember that. Remember God creatively works. And have the, 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 the statue commemorate in the, in the main street of your mind when you're in the midst of the next season of, of challenge. The second thing he constantly highlights in these psalms is to remember how God sustains his children in hardship. He says it here in verse 4 of chapter 54, of Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder or sustainer of my life. The word uphold, sustain, actually means to prop up. It's like a tomato plant. And, you, you know, you put the, the, the metal thing around it, cage thing around it, and you let the tomato grow up in it, and it, and it doesn't flop over because it's propped up. It ha, it, it's, it's held. It's used in Psalm 50, 37. David says, though he may stumble, he will not fall for the Lord upholds him or sustains him with his hand. It's used of Samson, you know, the, the, the judge of Israel, and, and he had miraculous power that God gave him, and it was as long as he didn't cut his hair, he had this miraculous power, and he blew it and told the wrong person, and uh, his secret was out, and they cut his, they shaved his head, and he lost his strength, and eventually as a prisoner, they put out his eyes, the Philistines did, they hated him, and his strength grew back because his hair grew back, and nobody was paying attention. But they brought him in to mock him in a giant festival they had in, in their big palace. And they, they put him between two pillars that held up the building. And it says he braced himself between the pillars. Now, in his case, he actually knocked them down. But the idea was this word for bracing is what's used here. We are braced by the Lord. We are sustained by the Lord. We are held up by the Lord. This picture is constantly returned to by David in these Psalms of Lament. He says, I don't know how I'm still standing. I don't know how God sustained me. I was so tired. I was so weary. I was so discouraged. I was so overwhelmed with threats and dangers. I just felt I, I, I can hardly keep treasure. I mean, some of you feel exactly that way. Some of you are right there and say, I just, I can't, I, I can hardly face going forward. And David would say to us, remember, God is a sustaining God. Around dinner time last night, 
we got a text, uh, Marion and I, um, about a report about Harold Ebersol. Harold is Harold and Sean are missionaries to Bangladesh, and they are home on on leave, and it's been extended medical leave because Harold, who came home, um, starting his plan was while he was on break from the mission field, he was training for the Boston Marathon, and found out shockingly when he went in that he had uh, lymphoma and leukemia. I mean, just a medical report, severely life-threatening. Many of you know Harold's story. He's preached here. You've heard him at team. And basically, they have had a, a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster, where it seems like uh, the treatments have worked and things are contained, and he's going to be able to go back to Bangladesh and continue their work there as the field council, with, with the field council and the others. And, and then a bad report, and it's just been up and down, up and down, and all the exhaustion of that. And yesterday, they unexpectedly, um, some things developed, and he had to go into the emergency room. He's at the University of Penn, and the word came back with new tests that he now is diagnosed with a much more rapidly growing form of cancer in his, in his organs. And I just... I didn't even think about this till after we had prayed. Mary and I sat there on the couch and we just prayed. And I realized what I had just prayed without even thinking about it. I just prayed, Lord, sustain them. And it's the go-to here. We just say, God, be yourself. Sustain them. Keep them from falling. Keep them standing still hoping, still trusting, still growing in godliness and not letting it steep into bitterness as they have so, by God's grace, beautifully done. That David says, he's the one that carries you. He's the one today, wherever you are, wherever you're facing. He says, I am the sustainer. Yeah, you're a tomato plant that without me, you're going to flop right over and it's too much. It's too weighty. It's too much to care. He says, lean into me. Take it an hour at a time. I will sustain you. David says, I, I need to remember that all the time when I'm in the midst. It's, it's one of the bases on which I choose to trust. I have seen him sustain me in the past. Third, the one that David leaned into the most, that was the most basis of his buts of his choosing in the midst of real hard things to trust God. It was his admonition to us to remember how God loves his children without fail. There's a word that's used in the Psalms and primarily in the Psalms of Lament, although it's used other places. It's used 128 times in the original. The word, I'm going to say it in Hebrew best I can. For you that know Hebrew, be merciful. It's chesed. K-H-E-S-E-D is how we would transliterate it. It actually has no true English equivalent. Uh, the different versions translate it this way. Unfailing love is the New International. Steadfast love is the ESV. Loving kindness is the King James. Basically, they're all trying to bring out the fact of what David is leaning into. 
It is the most powerful, beautiful, fullest expression of God's compassionate love to his people. It carries the idea of it being a relentless, unfailing, unflinching love. That David says, this is where I place my hope that God's love won't fail me. That I can trust in his unfailing love. He says it in all kinds of different ways. In Psalm 86, he says, God, you are abounding in unfailing love. In Psalm 6, he says this, turn, Lord, and deliver me, save me, because of your unfailing love. He says, God, turn to me, deliver me, because I know that you're crazy about me. I know that you love me, that that your love is unfailing, it's directed towards me. The degree to which you know that, the degree to which we really embrace the magnificent, unrelenting, unflinching, unfailing love of God for us as individuals is the degree to which we really do say, Lord, I'll trust you. Because I don't know how this is going to work. I don't see any hope. I don't see any way. But I am going to hope in your love not failing. That somehow you're going to sustain. Somehow you're going to creatively work. Somehow you're going to carry me in a way I don't know. And the degree to which you know him in his love for you is the degree to which you can do that in all circumstances. Now you may say, well, I like that. I mean, I'd love to be that sure that God's crazy about me. That, I mean, it's pretty hard for me to even at times believe he likes me because I don't like me. Uh, I mean, it's hard for me to say he loves me. Yeah, he loves me because, I mean, that's what you do. God loves, I get it, you know, so that's his job. No, I'm not talking about that. I mean, are you saying that does he like you? He likes you. I mean, what's that? Who said that? He, uh, that reminds me of the Emmy Award. Um, Sally Fields. You like me. You really like me. Sorry. Forget all that. The, but he does. He likes you. He not only loves you. You say, well, I thought love was higher. It is. But for us, we sort of think of love as this ethereal. No. His love for you is unrelenting, unceasing. It is absolutely unfailing. You say, well, that's cool. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I want to be loved like that, but I don't, I don't understand love. I don't understand really being loved. My parents, I don't, I don't feel they love me very well. And quite frankly, there's not one of you that have been loved effectively, unfailingly, unflinchingly by your parents, and there's not one of you that's passing that on to your kids either. But there is one that knows you best, who knows you fullest, And he says, I'm talking about love that is unfailing and unflinching, that I am crazy about you. Yeah, I like you. I delight in you. And you say, well, okay, I I, I like that. I, this has become so prominent to me, the reality of this and seeing just how pervasive this is in, in motivating people throughout the scriptures, throughout all of our lives, throughout my life, that I I have found in the last few years, my major prayer for people, if I have one go-to prayer, whether it's for members of my family, whether it is for 
for people, a part of our church family that I'm doing life with, it is this prayer I pray more than any other. Lord, help them know how much you love them. Because it is the life changer. It is what brings about trust. It is what evokes us leaning into God. So I'm going to digress for a second here. And I just want to give some suggestions about how do you learn how much God loves you? I mean, what does that mean? Okay, God loves me. I get it. It's his job. I mean, all right, you know, I'm a child. I'm grateful. But what do you mean? I need to know how much he loves me. How does that happen? Well, here's, here's four simple suggestions. One, you learn how much God loves you first by accepting what his love has done for you. That John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He says that we are all, every one of us here in this room, every one of you watching online has been separated from God. There is a disconnect in our relationship. That disconnect was caused by sin. Spiritual death, living with as a, as a, a, a spiritually dead person, which all of us do, just means that there is lack of connection vertically with God. We know about him, we hear about him, but as far as personal relationship, as far as really doing life together, it was sort of looking through the glass and hearing about it and seeing other people say this is great, but we're not there because there's a disconnect. We sense this is not personal. I don't really feel like, like God loves me the way you're talking about God sent Jesus Christ to enable us to restore the relationship. Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for your sins, that you could have forgiveness and that you could enter into a relationship as his own daughter or son. That's why Jesus said, as many as receive me, to them we give the power to become the children of God, even to those that believe on my name. What he's saying is when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you pass into, you become a member of the family. You become the beloved child of God. But first, you need to embrace the fact that you need that forgiveness, that you need that relationship with, Christ, with God through Christ. And so the first way you let God love you and learn how much he loves you is to embrace what he's done for you through Jesus Christ. There are all different terms, born again, you, you receive Christ as Savior, you're saved, you experience new birth, they're all talking about the same thing. It is entering into that. There's no more important decision in your entire life than what you do with that offer of Jesus Christ being the Lord and Savior of your life. So you first embrace what God has done for you and become his child. Secondly, you lean into what he says about you. That you allow God's verdict to be yours. That you embrace. Now, this part of this verdict we don't like because here's the verdict. You are more self-centered, corrupt, and evil than you ever dared believe. But you are more loved and valued and accepted than you ever dared hope. That the reality is that we see, Lord, this is not about me measuring up. This is not about me living my life in such a way that, you know, that you're satisfied. I see the longer I live with you, the self-centeredness, the corruption, the, 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 the orientation towards self. However, I also understand that you know that. And the verdict you've given is, in spite of that, 
You're valued. You're accepted. You're loved. That's why I gave you Christ. And so we live in light of this verdict. And what happens, and I've said this a million times, what happens is the more you embrace that verdict, the less you're on the mathematical formula, right? You know, the greater than, less than. Everybody wants to be on the greater than side. I'm greater than, you know, at least in this area, at least body beautiful or house. You know, I got a big house or a successful job or a cool career. Nobody wants to be on the less than side. So we're fighting to be on the greater than side. And we don't want to be around people that make us feel like we're a less than. And God says, you don't have to live on that grid anymore. You're accepted. You're valued. You're cherished. The verdict is your mind. And you don't have to live trying to measure up and, 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 and to, to accomplish to be valuable and to be worthy. That's all been declared. And, and so we learn how much God loves us as we lean into what he says about us. Third thing, we ask him to show us his love. Psalmist did this in a lament psalm, Psalm 17, verse 7. Here's what he said. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Say, God, it feels weird to me to say, show me how much you love me. Well, David did. Show me the wonders. Show me how amazing this is. Show me what it, how it really feels to be your boy that you say I delight in that I'm crazy about you. Now, God may show you in ways you don't expect. It may be a little bit about like the prayer for patience. Circumstances are, are going to get more challenging. I don't know. I don't know how he'll do it. But I think it's right for us to ask, Lord, show me what, what is this that you, you say you love me with an unrelenting, unfailing love. And fourth, intentionally put your hope in this love. This is what David did in Psalm 147, verse 10 and 11. Here's what he says. God's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Some of you right now are in a season where you just say, I don't, I don't have hope in anything. I don't have hope we're going to financially make it. I don't have hope we're ever going to really get healed. I don't have hope that, that this relation, that anybody's going to ever love me. I don't have hope in anything. I don't, I don't have hope in, in a career start. I don't have hope. The Lord says, well, that's a beautiful place to learn. You can hope in my unfailing love. There will be times in your life where the Lord will allow you to feel you don't have hope in anything else in order that you can learn, that you can hope in his love not failing, and then you can watch him move. There will be seasons of darkness, and all this, of course, is in the context of a season of pain and suffering that we learn about God's love for us. And it sounds counterintuitive, right? I mean, this is the worst season for me to learn that God loves me because it doesn't feel like he loves me. Why would he do that? I mean, I wouldn't do this if I were God. I certainly wouldn't allow these things to happen in your life, Mark. I mean, why, why, this is terrible. What kind of a God? So how do we learn about God's love there? Here's how. Well, here's a statement that um, Nicholas Walterstorff says in his book, Lament for a Son. I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. 
one of the things that you will see through tears is what David saw, the unfailing love of God. Why does that happen in pain and suffering? I think one reason is because in pain and suffering, you learn how little you are in control. And you also then realize how little you've been in control when you thought you were in control. And you realize, wow, I can't control my life, but, but God, is, God is superintending things. And then you realize, you know what? This isn't new. This is, God has always been at work. You also learn that in pain and suffering, you tend to see your faults, your weaknesses, your brokenness. Yet, God loves you there. He continues to give the verdict. Actually, he will give the verdict louder in those moments as you lean into him and you say, I don't feel loved here. I don't feel valuable here. I don't feel acceptable here. And he says, I want you to find your joy, your hope in my love for you. I want you to lean into my acceptance and value of you. You put your hope in his love. Okay, we need to move fast. How to choose and keep choosing trust Number one, you got to be listening to truth. If you've watched The Lord of the Rings or read the books, the trilogy, you know there's a guy named Denethor. Denethor was the steward of Gondor, which is a big king. I mean, he thought of himself as a king, even though it wasn't his job title. But he acted like it. He was a powerful, I mean, willful, dominant person. But by the time the hobbits, our friends, and Aragorn and Gandalf and the gang have arrived at Gondor, this powerful man has become a sniveling coward. And he's depressed, and he's upset, and he's, everything's dark and gloomy, and, and then it comes out. Why? He has one of those things that are called the Palantir. And the Palantirs are this globe in, in Middle Earth of, of Lord of the Rings that enable you to see beyond. You, you can see different places all over Middle Earth. But ultimately, they're controlled by the Dark Lord, Soren. And so what he was doing is he's looking into the Palantir and, and he feels like he's controlling it by his will, but not realizing that he's only being shown what Soren wants him to see. And he's seeing true things, but he's seeing the, the marshalling of the powers of darkness and it's just astonishing the, the power that they have. And, but he's not seeing everything. He's only seeing what Soren wants him to see, but they are true things. But he's filled with terror and filled with hopelessness. And, and he's, he's absolutely filled it with darkness. Now, this is, of course, what happens in our lives. That we see things that have a degree of, of truth to it. Some of us are remarkably good at forecasting what can go wrong, right? I mean, we have, uh, my favorite definition of, create, of, of worry is it is creative thinking on steroids. Leaders have this. Frankly, this is one of the great blights for leaders. Leaders are able to define reality. And so they're able to see problems. They're able to see things that, are, that, are, that could happen. You've got to be able to do that to know how to navigate through. But, but if you only see the potential dangers, you will go dark. You will be filled with fear or worry, anxiety, whatever word you want to do. Your, your creative thinking will go on steroids and you'll be a mess. You have to hear the right voices. You have to hear the full story. David said, 
I not only see the dangers, I not only see in Psalm 3, verse 7, that there are enemies surrounding me. That's what he said in Psalm 3, verse 7. He says, I also see in Psalm 3, verse 4, that God, you are a shield around me. Yeah, they're out there. But inside is the shield. Now, Denethor would not have seen the shield. He only saw the, the armies. And the scriptures are that which enable us to see the full picture. And David would encourage us to meditate on the Psalms, to meditate on truth, to have your mind filled with, yes, there are enemies surrounding me, but there is also a shield surrounding me. And none of those enemies can get in, but they come through the shield by the will of God. We must hear the word. We must hear the right voices. And if you're not in the word, in the, in the midst of suffering and pain, you're still hearing the voices. You are absolutely hearing voices. And you are interpreting life in light of those. You're just not hearing the whole story. Secondly, preach to yourself. This is the result of that. Tim Keller says in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, we may hear our hearts say, and it's hopeless. And Psalm 42 is a lament psalm, by the way. But we should argue back. We should say, well, that depends what you were hoping. And was that the right thing to put some hope in? Notice how the psalmist in Psalm 42 analyzes his own hopes. Why are you so cast down on my soul? Notice that he admonishes himself, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. The psalmist is talking to his heart, telling it to go to God, to look to God. Preach to yourself. Apply the truth. Third, be with God's people in corporate worship. Again, this is Psalm 42. David says this in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He says, and here's David. And you'd say, well, what's the, what does David need the house of God for? I mean, he's out in the wilderness. He's, he's got this beautiful personal, quiet place to meet with God. And he did, and it happened to him a lot. But he, but he constantly is saying, man, I, I look forward to getting back to the house of God. Why? Because there is power in corporate worship. I love the fact that we're online and people can live stream our services as a service. But I want to tell you, there is value in being in the presence of the people of God in corporate worship. Why did David feel a need of that? Here's why. Because when you gather together and you sing the songs and, and, and by your very presence responding to a, a sermon or, or just the presence of God's people, the presence of God here, what you're saying to the person that comes into the room this morning who's struggling to see anything beyond the Palantir's darkened picture, we're gathering together and we're saying, it's true. There is a God that is worthy of your trust. There is a God that is a shield around you. There is a God you can depend on. There is a God who loves you and is for you and has an unrelenting, unfailing love. And there's a lot of times we just need to hear that, right? That's the power of corporate worship. It's the voice that says, it's true. I've found it to be true. Next one. Where are my glasses? There they are. There we go. Um, latch on to specific statements of Scripture. 
David did this all the time. David constantly has similar phrases that he uses in the Psalms of Lament. He has visuals, metaphors, shield, um, stronghold, fortress. I mean, he prayed that. He talked to God with those expressions. But he also has phrases that he continually mentions. It's interesting, one whole psalm, Psalm 137, which has, I don't remember if it's 20 or 30 verses, but basically every, every verse has two, phrase, two, two lines, and the second line is the same in every verse. The second line is this, his unfailing love last, endures forever. That was a mantra of David. It's why he said later in a, in a passage, the Lord delights in those who hope in his unfailing love. What you'll find as you go through these psalms is you'll get phrases that will be meaningful to you. There'll be ones that you'll, you'll hold on to that will become your own verbiage as you, as you talk with God, even as you talk with other people. For me, recently, some of the psalms that are that is, is Psalm 55, 21, where it says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you and he will not let you fall. Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who hope in his unfailing love. In Psalm 3, verse 3, my favorite metaphor from the Psalms is that he is a shield around us. Find your own, get your own, but latch on to those and hold on to those as God's specific spoken word to you. Practice thanksgiving and praise. He says this in verse 6 of Psalm 54, I will, praise, I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. This is a constant response. He chooses to praise God. He chooses to thank God. I'm sure there are a lot of times when David was overwhelmed with darkness and dark stuff, and he didn't feel like thanking God, but he did. He intentionally did it. Here's why it's so important. If you have a little tiny pebble in your shoe, and you're walking around, it utterly dominates your life. You're always thinking about that shoe. Maybe there's some reason you, you can't bend down and fix it or something. But you don't remember that your heart's still pumping blood all the time. You know, you don't remember that your mind is still working. You don't remember that you were at the gym yesterday pumping irons, you know, and, 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 you, and you, man, you've got your body fat down and so many good things. No, you don't remember my foot hurts. All I remember is this little teeny wee piece of gravel. But we lose perspective. It's not all that's going on. And that's what happens in our lives. We look at the danger, we look, and we forget to say, God, okay, I have a pebble. I hope you remove it soon. But until you do, I also want to remember all the things that are working well, that aren't bugging me, that aren't making me go crazy. Thank you. We need to intentionally praise and thank. And the last thing, embrace that you will need to constantly make choices to trust God. When you're in a season of suffering, you will be confronted with choices all the time. Life is hard. People turn on you. Things are painful. You'll need fresh reminders of God's mercy and love. But in that journey of choosing to trust, of choosing to trust, when you again have gone through another time of lamenting and oh, oh, there's all this new stuff that's just killing me, but you've worked your way through to trust, you will look back and say, I can't believe what God showed me about himself. I can't believe how differently I view life. I can't believe. And one of the things that I believe God uses, and, and just, this is just anecdotal, I'm amazed how often God uses music to do that. I'm amazed how many people's stories to me are about a song they heard on the radio or, or, or a song they've just been playing over and over on the treadmill. 
Um, God does use music. Listen to the hymns, the great hymns. Listen to the contemporary hymns and the contemporary songs that are, where God is speaking truth into us. And I'm going to close with just a historic hymn that was written by a man named William Cowper who wrote in the 1700s, he struggled with deep bouts of depression. But out of his own life experience, he lay in laboring to turn his sorrow into trust, he wrote this song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I don't remember if we have, yeah, we do. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Maybe the greatest prayer we can pray in the midst of a season of lament is, God, keep me trusting. To pray with the guy with Jesus that said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, do that in our lives. Help us to choose to trust. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, we are dismissed.